1: Welcome back to the New Books and in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have the dual pleasure today of speaking with Dr. James Mallison, uh, who is a, a, a reader in Indology and Yoga Studies at SOAS University of London, and um, uh, also uh, um, Peter Santo, who is currently Associate Professor um, and Head of the Department of Tibetan and Buddhist studies at uh, ALT. Um, we'll be talking about a very uh, interesting uh, new publication um, yeah, central to, to all things yoga called uh, uh, the Amrita Siddhi and the Amrita Siddhi Mula, the earliest texts of the Hatha yoga tradition, uh, critically edited and translated by both of my guests today. Gentlemen, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hi, Raj, thanks very much for asking us Thank you very much you indeed know, for inviting us.
1: Oh, my pleasure. The pleasure is all ours. Um, yeah, you know this, Before we dive into the book, you know, there is a certain gravitas in all things yoga at Soas. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, uh, the center, uh, the, the interest in yoga, and maybe a little bit about uh, your own um, um, fascinating and uh, influential uh, path?
0: Well, I, I joined SOAS at the end of 2013, and there was already uh, an MA in yoga in meditation studies that had been set up by Professor Ulrich Pargel. Um, so I can't take any credit for, for, for getting the ball rolling at SOAS. But then straight away, I put in, or well, within a few months, I put in a, a, an application for one of these big ERC grants for a project called the Hatha Yoga Project. And to my delight, got got lucky with that and assembled a team of really excellent uh, scholars of, of yoga, both kind of modern yoga and uh, traditional historical yoga. And then about halfway through the project, which ran from 2015 to 2021, I applied to set up the, the SOAS Center for Yoga Studies. And that's over 2018 that got going. And that's been a great success as well. We've been putting on lectures in fact you know through the, the pandemic we went online of course and we've continued doing that because that's really sort of expanded our audience our online lectures get loads of people viewing and, and listening and we do summer schools and various other courses you just had a couple of my colleagues um uh the uh, who, you had sorry Jackie Hargreaves and Ruth Westerby were on talking about these new pod courses so there's all kinds of stuff going on um yeah and uh, it it has has become a sort of a, a hub, I think, for for international yoga studies.
1: Oh, without question. And um, uh, as you mentioned, we just recently had a conversation about the new yoga studies online platform and so has gone online <laughs> and uh i'm not sure how it happened but i appear to live uh these days uh at the intersection of sort of hindu studies and online platforms so here we are um okay so uh the amrita city you know what is this work you know what is the amrita city and, and perhaps a bit about why it might be important to look at it
0: Okay, well, so as part of the Hatha Yoga project, the core of that uh, research project was the production of 10 critical editions of important Sanskrit texts on physical yoga. And the earliest of those of the 10 that we propose to edit is this text, the Amrita Siddhi, which is the earliest known text on on physical yoga. It doesn't call its yoga Hatha Yoga. Uh, That comes a little bit later, not much later. And I first, I got a a manuscript, I mean, a long time ago, I got manuscripts, you know, when I was in, during my PhD, I was running around India, getting lots, going to lots of libraries and getting as many manuscripts as I could. And I got a couple from Jodhpur of the Amrita city. And I remember I was uh, on a holiday in in North, supposed holiday in Northern England, and I think it was 2007, and the weather was so terrible, I spent most of the time indoors. And I read this uh, manuscript of the Amarata Siddhi, one of the Jodhpur ones, and quickly realized that it was a hugely important text. It was very, um, really, I mean, seminal is quite a good pun because of the name of the text and what it's all about. But it's definitely seminal for the future uh, Hatha Yoga corpus. Um, And so slowly gathered more and more manuscripts of it over the years and started working on preliminary critical editions. Had, I think I read it twice in groups in Oxford with Professor Alexis Sanderson, and then finally having badgered uh, a Professor uh, Curtis Schaefer, who's at um, University of Virginia, he 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 was the first person who brought this text to public knowledge with um, an article on it published in 2002, uh, which he was mainly working from this bilingual Sanskrit Tibetan manuscript, probably from the 12th century. There's flexibility there it might not definitely be but it, it definitely has origins in at least the 12th century maybe a copy of a 12th century manuscript uh which was way older than any of the ones i'd been working on and collating for the edition so finally got hold of scans of that from him and then with peter in oxford peter was then uh, a fellow of all souls and we read the the edition i think was it with the Lexus that no, I can't remember? We read it so many times, so many different groups. I can It also slightly melts into one. But uh, we read this. We read the edition with this latest manuscript collated, uh, or we were reading it as we were going, and it slowly became apparent. You know, when you have a, I say slowly. It was actually now looking back, really obvious from the start, or not from the start, but as soon as we started working closely on it, that. There were features of the text which had been completely incomprehensible to me, but made perfectly good sense to Peter because they were, uh, you know, it would be teachings or terminology from Vajrayana Buddhism, so Tantric Buddhism, of which Peter is a great expert. And also, of course, the the, the manuscript had a, a Tibetan translation of the Sanskrit with it. So Peter was able to read that, which I wasn't. And fairly quickly, as I realized how important it was going to be to, have some expertise in tantric buddhism in order to make sense of the text uh, which i do not have i uh, invited peter to collaborate with me on the edition as part of the hatha yoga project and to my delight he said yes and that uh, sort of set off a, a few years of a very pleasurable collaboration
1: so many fascinating uh, threads uh, to be touched on um you know peter tell us a little bit about um about the role of your expertise in tantric Buddhism, why is that significant for this text? Tell us about perhaps the relationship and that we can sort of piece together in the world behind the text. I mean, are, are notions such as Buddhism or tantric Buddhism anachronistic? I mean, what you know, is, are they coming from a, a shared sort of cultural ethos? You know, tell us a bit about that.
2: Yeah, well, you ask very complicated questions. These are indeed uh, very important. All,
1: all naive, about. naive questions. Well, I mean. indeed,
2: <laughs> no, not not naive at all. These are really the questions, uh, uh, which obviously we, we cannot answer comprehensively. <laughs> Um, what was really interesting about this collaboration so what we both learned from Alexis Anderson we were both his students is to read as widely as possible and to read as many kinds of text as possible so it was uh, somehow as part of that exercise that I joined these readings with Jim and uh, so in a way I started as a kind of an innocent bystander and then Actually, I remember the time we were we were in in my uh, in my rooms in All Souls, and we got to this particular verse. Uh, the author is just about to launch into teaching his great uh, teaching, which is the centerpiece of the work, and he says, "Well." you should be doing this because that other practice doesn't work and that other practice was a was a curious word which the yoga experts in the room did not realize but it made perfect sense to me so for the for me that was kind of the the tetris moment you know when the when the four little blocks fall into place I was like aha so this is this is the key and then following on that trail we did realize that There is a lot of Buddhism in this text, but um, perhaps we shouldn't overemphasize the Buddhist background. I mean, by this time, Buddhism is already very, very eclectic and is taking a lot from Shaivism and from India. But there was something about the terminology which was uh, rather unusual and which was only transmitted in this very old manuscript, which the other transmissions sort of edited out discreetly or uh, less discreetly. So that's what really excited me to to take uh, part in this project because i am fascinated with this uh, tantric buddhist world in india which uh, i believe was a, a rather small majority but uh, what they lacked in numbers they they made up in in the in the sheer well vastness of uh, what they what they managed to write And the sheer variety and indeed bewildering variety of of their practices. So pulling these two strands together was really uh, in a way it was quite surprising. We didn't expect that this would be something like this would be standing at the basis of Hatha yoga. So really a very interesting world uh, opened up which even we didn't expect uh, in the in the beginning. As for what tantric buddhism is, is a very interesting question. It sort of starts somewhere in the 6th or 7th century, perhaps, in India. They say that, hey, we have here a new set of uh, meditation and and ritual technologies, which can get you to the goal, i.e. to become a Buddha much quicker. So that's the basic ethos of esoteric Buddhism. That's what it does. But um, then things do take a turn, and uh, around... About a hundred years later, they become what we call antinomian or transgressive. So they start doing practices which go against social norms and monastic ethics and even just you know standard human ethics. Um and they they really take this idea of reaching non-duality through the cancellation of of opposites in a in a very serious way. So ritually pure, ritually impure things that are allowed, things that are not allowed. So uh, to this end, they developed a set of uh, really interesting and sometimes rather strange practices. And this kind of yoga, what we see in this text, sort of comes at the, at the tail end uh, of this story when uh, we already do have a very, very uh, mature and well-developed Tantric Buddhism. But the religion always changes, and that's what's so interesting about it. There are new ideas, new practices coming in all the time, and this is really part of that story, I think.
1: So how might have Hatha Yoga been characterized uh, prior to this text, or otherwise put, what sorts of dimensions are opened up? by this thread uh, in this text. And maybe just in passing mention, um, to the best of our academic knowledge, when are we talking about?
2: Well, as Jim said, this this old manuscript that we could access is dated 11 Sixty-nine was it, uh, if I remember correctly. But then we realized that actually this is uh, a copy of a manuscript which was penned in uh, eleven sixty-nine. So it must come from that ta- from uh, before that time, and uh, with a couple of very very faint traces, we could push it back perhaps even maybe a century more. So definitely after the turn of the millennium. That's the environment that we are talking about. At least that's what we have evidence for what really happened we can never say we can only follow the evidence
1: could either of you tell us a little bit about the critically uh the, the critical edition process and we've touched on this in a number of podcasts whether um you know uh, talking about the Mahabharata project of the Puranas et etc but you know what was that process like for you you know what what how many manuscripts did you start off with and what made what might that have looked like for you?
2: Um well I'm afraid I was I was the one charged with constructing the critical edition mostly and uh, it was rather torturous because we we used definitely more than 10 manuscripts I can't remember the exact number was it 14 or something like that Um so basically what what we do is something that we all do every day so when you read the the newspaper if you see if you see some kind of mistake you sort of automatically correct it and say oh this is what the author must have meant so you know roughly put that's what we do manuscript cultures are extremely fragile in transmission so mistakes can creep in all the time things are misread things are miscopied the scribe is tired hungry what have you and they make mistakes so in an ideal situation we have several manuscripts of a text which we try to collect and then we compare them And um, we sort of try to hack back to uh, what the author's actual text was. But of course, uh, we can only go that far. We can probably never really, really reconstruct uh, to 100% accuracy. But based on the evidence, this is the best we can do. So it's uh, a lot of uh, reading and checking and weighing one reading against the other. And there are various... Principles according to which uh, we do these things. Unfortunately, we also had some kind of Tibetan translation, so we were also informed how translators, 800, 900 years ago, dealt with this text. So it's a it's a very complex and um, yeah, very detailed uh, process which needs checking again and again and again. And even up to the last minute, Jim and I kept changing our minds about this reading or the other because. We also find parallels, so let's say when a, a, the text is quoted somewhere, then we compare it with that, but then you have the same story with the other text which quotes it, so it's um, yeah, really, really complex, to put it mildly.
1: So how is the text in hand currently structured?
0: uh we well it, it has a i think it's 35 chapters they're called vivekas and the first 10 of them they detail the the tatwas the important elements of the yogic body the body of the yogi and this is where the argument comes in and this is really interesting actually i think the, the first bit and I, it's sort of I mean, it's one of these texts it's so rich and so complex and as peter said you know you have to read it in great detail and also Really, we really benefited from reading it with lots of other people in these large groups. We had various workshops here and there and you know re- really required the input of, of, of experts in all kinds of different fields. And but the, the, the first 10 verses, they detailed these tattvas, these important elements of the body which should be are to be manipulated in yogic practice. And it makes the very bold claim. In fact, I mean, going back to what people were saying about the editing practice at first. There's there's a verse which I can't quote it perfectly exactly, but it says it it, it sort of gives that that usual tantric and even sort of esoteric global esoteric maxim of of so what's above you know so above so below you know everything that's in the macrocosm is in the microcosm. But then it actually we were reading it wrong, and it was through getting this older manuscript and then looking at some of the readings and the other witnesses we realized that actually what it's saying is that. Everything that's in the macrocosm in the universe is also in the body, but there are also some things in the body which are not found anywhere else, and it's only through manipulating them that you can get, uh, attain liberation, nirvana, as the text calls it at the end. So in fact, and then this, this point is repeated in different ways in this <laughs> section of, of 10 chapters, where uh it's said two or three times that that mental practices meditative practice will not get you to the final goal you know there's you basically says you can't control the mind with the mind in the same way that you can't control fire with fire and so forth so it's really saying ultimately that uh, only by manipulating the body can you get uh, uh liberation, nirvana? So I think it's quite interesting the context of today's sort of modern yoga practice where people say, Oh, it's all about the body now, and they've forgotten these important meditative practice. That's what it's actually all about. In fact, this text says, No, all that meditation is completely pointless, and you should just do these practices which work on the body. And so, having detailed the the was in the body, the next uh four chapters are about the actual practices and only so and the 14th one is a summary but 11 12 and 13 detail the individual practices which are quite simple i mean they took us a while to work out what on earth was going on because uh, you know the 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 text is written in a fairly obscure way certainly in parts uh but they they are relatively simple physical postures and they involve the the third one involved they're to be done in sequence and the third one involves lifting yourself up and dropping yourself on the ground and that's meant to Uh, make the accumulated uh, breath shoot up the central column and you should do that uh, 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 over and over again but make it burst through various knots along the central channel and then uh, that will that eventually leads to liberation and then the remaining chapters we have four four chapters on the different grades of practitioner and then the rest of the text is about what happens as you progress through the four stages of yoga practice um so yeah that's a a, a summary of, of of what's in it
1: compared to other uh Hathiyawa texts what is and we've always touched on much of this but what's most striking or unique or interesting about this text um
0: i it's interesting one, one would normally think of 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 uh, teachings getting more complicated over time um and getting added to but in fact if we look at the the Hutta corpus the subsequent texts which almost all draw in some way or other, or other on the amrita city they they seem to um express a, a less detailed understanding of what's actually going on in the yogic body throughout these processes. So it gives you a lot of detail. It really explains what the different winds are doing as you go through the practices and so forth. Um, but another point, so maybe not directly answering your question, but a point I'd like to make sure I, uh, I make is that also over time, over recent years, I, I've come to the conclusion that this text is actually the, the first text. Uh, that teaches any physical yoga practices beyond simple seated postures for meditation. I mean, I, I used to think, and I've published, I've said this in, you know, my PhD uh, doctoral thesis was then published as a book on Ketri Mudra, the books Ketri Vidya. And I said this, that I thought that these, these distinctive Hatha yoga physical practices were ancient and then only get written down about a thousand years ago. But I think now the evidence is very, is, is, is so great that, um, or the absence of evidence of of any evidence whatsoever for any of these practices prior to the advent of the armata siddhi is so great that i think it really represents the origins of of physical yoga practice in in india so yeah you know, so i'd get that point across as well i mean we make this in the in the introduction of the book and then another uh, something that we discovered sort of fairly late on in our work on the book as well is that quite a lot of the the sort of theory and the principles behind the yoga practice taught in the book, we find uh, also in um, Chinese texts from the same period and slightly earlier, in fact, in China. What, um, I mean, I think we requires a lot more comparative work. It's the sort of thing that would be great for a huge research project. But what we don't find, well, I haven't found in the obviously I'm reading in translation and secondary sources, but um, haven't found any the practices themselves it seems to be the principles surrounding it, this idea of within the yogic body you've got the sun sorry the sun and the moon and they're moving around and you've got to line them up and um and so forth we do find those in slightly earlier uh chinese texts but not actually the practices that are taught in the amrita Siddhi that uh, manipulate those elements within the body um but yeah i reiterate that it really is seminal for the ongoing hatha yoga corpus lots of the ideas that are first articulated in that text then become absolutely fundamental to later discourse on on hatha yoga
1: would you characterize so textured a text as coming from or or, or featuring predominantly a particular uh, worldview or darshana or, or or strand of hinduism
0: of what well, the, the amrita siddhi itself hmm well i think i don't think well hinduism obviously i don't think we can consider cuz i'd say it was it was certainly composed in a buddhist milieu but i mean peter can say more about this but from my understanding very much a heterodox buddhist milieu it's sort of you know saying it, the 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 point is that it's when it when it's arguing against others uh, it's using buddhist terminology always and quite quite obscure relatively esoteric buddhist terminology i don't know if peter would agree with that um but that's my my understanding i find
1: that yeah, really fast sorry <laughs> go ahead
2: go ahead and there's not much philosophy in the text i really think that the point of the author was to 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 delineate and to teach a practice uh which either well not he but his master or his masters uh have discovered and really the the drive of the whole thing is to sort of get rid of philosophical ideas and all sorts of uh, ritual paraphernalia, and just to concentrate on this really, really intense physical uh, practice that the author sees as the as the key to liberation. I mean, in that way, it's more or less similar to everything that went on in India, because everyone was liberation. That's the ultimate goal of all darshanas. But uh, there is not a lot of philosophy in there. So, one
1: of the fascinating threads, you know, I mean, there there are no shortage of. Um interesting things about this text um but i was recently teaching a course on uh the 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 these these esoteric tantric goddesses um and i, I was fascinated to see knowledge of uh uh for example so clearly this is a, a very rich uh, the, the praxis that's surrounding this this text uh, which we can only conjecture into but it's it seems clear that the the proponents of this text or its authors were well aware and engaged in a variety of, 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 of esoteric country traditions. Would you say that's a fair characterization?
2: Um, yeah sure. Um, I mean among the ten Mahavidyas we do find two which are Buddhist and of course the Mahavidya tradition is very eastern so it's the from you know the Bengal, what is now Bengal Bangladesh area and this was really the hotbed for uh, innovation uh, as far as tantric Buddhism goes. This was really the center uh, for for this for this religion. So I, I don't find that surprising. I mean, we do see when when Buddhism gradually disappears from East India, we do see a lot being preserved in uh, quote unquote Hindu texts. I mean, I always use Hindu in <laughs> scare quotes <laughs> because uh, yeah, it's a it's a very complicated term.
1: Well, without question, it's sort of a, it's not a species or a genus, it's more of a jungle you know the term hindu and folk, folks treat it like a species or a genus but it's it's really just a label for an ecosystem uh, of ideas that may or may not overlap with what we think of other as other quote unquote world religions but um yeah ecosystem
2: uh, is very good um I'm yeah. going to use that thanks
1: that's <laughs> how it's how I teach it well uh, feel free to use it but I hope that I can use the when the tetris piece falls into place <laughs> cuz <Because> I thought <laughs> that's a great um and I wasn't particularly into in, in into video games but I I, that you know, there are moments in studying the frame of um, the Mahab- certain Mahabharata stories and uh, Markandeya Purana stories where that's what it felt like—the Tetris piece lined up, and it was like, boom, <laughs> you figured something out.
2: Yeah, Yeah. Uh I'm I'm sorry for our young viewers, they're gonna have to look up what is Tetris, but I think people, people, people from our generation used to play it under the desk in in school. So yeah, let's just say the aha moment. And really, these are the moments that we live for. These are such gratifying, wonderful moments when, when somehow things drop into place and ah, now I see it makes sense. So yeah, in that way it was very, very gratifying to work on this book.
1: So tell us you you know is the the hatha yoga project is formally over but what what's the next step in terms of this this work or this this line of thought
0: in terms of the hatha yoga project as a whole we've still got plenty of outputs to finalize you know there are lots of i think two or three critical editions have been accepted for publication and you know final revision and indexing and i'm i've got three that are sort of between 95 and 85 percent done it's just those last bits of pushing them over the line there's an edited volume about to come out that's a very interesting workshop that uh, my colleagues mark singleton and daniela Beverlac were put together looking at you know possible influences on physical yoga practice from other traditions such as you know dance and uh martial arts and and, and that sort of thing which was generally in fact apart going back to the point I made about China the only presentation was a very good presentation by a uh a young doctoral um student I think she's now completed her PhD called uh uh gosh I can't remember Dolly, Dolly Yang uh, I think that I think that's the name, but that was showing the, the overlaps with Chinese practice and, and uh, between Chinese practice and hatha yoga. So that volume's about to come out. Um, yeah, Jason and I have now working, Jason Birch and I are working on two new projects, one to do a critical edition of the Hatha Pradipika. Um, with the uh, University of Marburg, Professor Jürgen Haneda as the PI in Marburg. And then we have another uh, uh, another project with Professor Shaman Hatley at the University of Boston, University of Massachusetts, Boston, to edit a text called the Yoga Chintamani. Um, really should have finished the other project first because now I have way too much on my plate. But the, the Hatha Yoga project, the, the work we've done there has really enabled these other two projects because the Hatha Yoga corpus is so intertextual, it's crazy. I mean, it just becomes, as Peter sort of pointed out already, some of the complications we get of editing the text, and we realise that, you know, that the text was borrowed a verse from that text, but that text has two different recensions in which, te- you know, and then the, the later commentator draws from one recension of the text, and it's, the whole thing is such a, a minefield, you know, as as Peter was saying, with an individual text, we can draw a stemmer, a stemmatic diagram of how the different manuscripts are related. But then we can then extend that to the whole Hatha Yoga corpus. And I think, I mean, it's something I find fascinating, but I think if I really do try to make sense of it, I'll go completely mad because it is so, so complicated. Um, but that's, yeah, the, the, so the reason that these these uh, projects on the Hatha Pradipika and Yoga with Chintamani have been enabled by the Hatha Yoga project is because they, the Hatha Pradipika in particular is at least sort of 50 percent borrowings from earlier texts and the texts that it borrows uh, most from we've been we've edited as part of the hatha yoga project so you could look at it like a house of cards but it's a bit like that at the moment but i think we're we're slowly establishing the uh, more solid foundation so that we can really make sense of this whole whole uh, corpus
1: Two things come to mind uh one is an image of you well into your twilight years in your rocking chair somewhere where um the 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 grand unified theory of hatha yoga has dawned on you and it's broken the whole tetris system and there you go um but um but but between now and then i imagine that you will have occasion to um return to the podcast and 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 put on the radar of uh, our listeners uh many of whom are are, our specialist colleagues uh these uh, fascinating and important um, works that are being churned out. Uh, those are. That saying, you're welcome back anytime you'd like to um, uh, publicize any of them
0: well thanks very um, much yeah hopefully there'll be more there'll be more soon there'll be more soon i have uh, some colleagues i can nudge as well get, so get them to hurry along so they can get on your podcast as well uh,
1: yeah, yeah. yeah 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 if you hurry up you'll do it before uh-huh. ross hangs up his podcasting mic so uh <laughs> come on kids <laughs> <laughs> um yeah no it's 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 just really fascinating work um uh, is there anything else about the the uh, either the, this particular work uh, or, or the project at large that you wanted to share? Well,
0: I just I think maybe Peter could say something a bit about the Amrita Siddhi Mullah and and its rich existence because I think what from my point of view what's in, you know because I work primarily on the Indian tradition and even though the the influence of the text was established early on and as I say it's been seminal for the whole subsequent uh, Hatha corpus the text itself it gets quoted in a couple of late uh digests and so forth but the there aren't that many manuscripts of it it seems to fall out of use and some of its practices you know the third of the three practices really doesn't seem to be used in india at all anymore but it went on to have a very rich um subsequent uh tradition in in tibet so i thought and that also is um Reflected in this text, the Amrita Siddhi Mula, which we only have in Tibet, so maybe Peter would like to say a word or two about that.
2: Yeah, that was really exciting. I mean, in the in the Tibetan canon, there are uh, quite a few texts which, at least nominally, want to attach themselves to the to the Amrita Siddhi. This was certainly the most important one, and for a while, until Jim talked me out of it successfully, I think I used to think that this really was even earlier than the Amrita Siddhi. But then, for various reasons, please read the book. Uh, we now think that it's more of a of a reworking. But indeed there is a very, very rich corpus uh, which was sort of kickstarted uh, by this tradition and this is something that um, unfortunately we didn't have much time to go into. Uh, the textual corpus is really, really vast. so if somebody who knows really, really good Tibetan uh, should tackle it, and I think that would be very, very fruitful work. That said, um, one should also have to be cautious because uh, the quality of these translations, as can be seen from the comments that we make to the siddhi Vassidimullah, is not that great. So you really have to know what's going on. It's a kind of a Google Translate, as it were. Uh, so it, it takes a lot of experience and a lot of reading in order to be able to reconstruct what uh, what the original may have had, which may have been in very bad Sanskrit, for all we know. Uh, we, we just don't know. Or uh, some of the te- these texts may have even been composed in Tibet and then sold off as as having an Indian provenance. I mean, the questions there are many. And I think this 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 would be a project onto its own.
1: I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, the best books are beginnings, not endings. And it sounds Very like true. grad students listening, interested in Tibet, who've got some Tibetan, um, among others, um, uh, you, you know, you, you, there might be a project here for you. Of course, clear it with your advisor first and don't blame me if it goes sideways. But anyhow. Um, <laughs> um that sort of opens the door for a question that I often ask on the podcast, which is, you know, you know, who in terms of interest and in subfields might most benefit from this work?
0: Well, uh, I mean, anyone interested in the history of yoga in particular, hatha yoga, physical yoga, I think it's I mean, it, uh, it's it, I always it's great to have. I'm pretty confident that this is the first text. You know that I can't see how there could be anything before it in fact logically it almost doesn't make sense maybe that sounds absurd but it it, it that it makes perfect sense to me that it is the earliest text of the corpus so that's a, a good way of understanding what happens subsequently you, know, you need to you need to get to the, the the roots of it really to understand the the later flourishing of of the tradition so yeah students of yoga and i would hope that students of and scholars of sanskrit and textual criticism as well because you know it's a it's a solid critical edition. there haven't been many in the field of, of yoga or many more broadly really in indological studies but both peter and i we follow in the tradition of our Supervisor Alexis Arnison and we remain utterly convinced that the only, only way really to get to grips with with these traditions with uh, pre-modern Indian religion is through painstaking, long-term you know philological work and pr- producing critical editions, studying all the manuscripts one can of these kind of text So yes, hopefully for. Uh, philologists, um, scholars of language as well. And, I'm, and Peter will probably, hope, hopefully, be of interest to uh, budologists as well. I, I think it should be. Um,
2: absolutely. I mean, uh, I already heard very nice things from uh, colleagues working in, uh, in, in Buddhology. So they are definitely reading. In fact, there is a reading group uh, led by one of our common friends, Gergely Hidosh, at the at the Dharma Gate Buddhist College here in Budapest. <laughs> so there were a few students who who wanted him uh, to read the text with them. So that's that's rather fun. It's already being read in classrooms. I think that's very gratifying. At the same time, uh, this is really a a scholarly book, so it's a very technical uh, book. Uh, I was looking through it today, and I was thinking. Oh my God, this is really dense. Uh, we 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 could have <laughs> we could have sometimes expanded, but uh, I think both Jim and I are the kind of people who don't like too many words. So if we can say it in one sentence or one footnote, we're going to say it and not just dilute it into in, into fifty pages. But uh, we are thinking about um, creating a more uh, accessible version of of the volume. So stay tuned for mm-hmm. that
1: stay tuned more podcasts <laughs> i'm not allowed to retire for the next decade or so from this. <laughs> um excellent excellent well you know um thank you very much for appearing on the podcast this is uh, this is certainly a seminal work uh, puns intended and i'm glad that it can be availed for a broader uh, public and scholarly audience at least in english language um so thank you very much Thank you. you. For those of you listening, um, we have been speaking with uh, uh, Jim Allison and uh, uh, Peter Santo on a new uh, translated and newly critically edited um, work that is seminal to Hatha Yoga, the uh, Amrita Siddhi. Um, Please, uh, all the details, of course, on the podcast notes as usual. Uh, Keep listening um keep well and keep contemplating um all things yoga take care